liberty to a people who love their liberty liberty to exercise all their god-given rights granted them at the time of their birth the right to speak their arms and pray worship god on land and say from that law we will keep our people free they call the king into accounting for his disregard of law Told their people not to yield before his threats For God established rulers to protect the rights of man And ordained government to fit into his plan To maintain his people's liberty time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from that law, we will keep our people free, through the jewelry, we'll guard our liberty. Such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God on land and say, from that law, we will keep our people free, through the jury, we'll guard our liberty, liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, granted them at the time of their birth, the right to speak their arms and pray, worship God not guilty we choose to acquit the state was wrong to charge him this law is not fit for a people who love their liberty for a people who will die for liberty Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Voice of Liberty. This is Rick Tyler, thanking you for tuning in. Today we want to begin by looking at the book of Malachi. Malachi in the Old Testament, the third chapter, we read in verse 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. It says in verse 7, Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. 
But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings, God said to his people. So we have in these passages the reality, the truth conveyed and communicated that in a generational sense, there has been an offense, a grievous offense committed against the God of Scripture, the God of Israel, that his people have turned away. They have gone away from his ordinances. They have not kept the ordinances of God. And of course, the God of Israel says to his people that if they will return unto him, then he will return unto them. And of course, he goes on, God goes on in this particular section of Scripture to enunciate the fact that the people have actually been robbing him. And of course, to simply turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to his ordinances is in and of itself a form of robbing him. But he specified in response to their query that in the area of tithes and offerings that they had been robbing him. Now, let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. And we read there in the 18th verse, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, we read there where Jesus says, And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Once again, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what do these passages of Scripture that we have read out of Malachi and out of Matthew, what do they have in common, or how do they relate one to another? Well, I submit to you that, that there is, in fact, a very direct, a very profound, and a very meaningful connection between these two sections of God's Word. Of course, God's Word in its entirety is very, very much intertwined, interrelated, interconnected, just in a generic sense. But Specifically looking at, at these passages that we have read, I would like to make a few observations. Of course, obviously, God is talking to his people in Malachi, but the same people are being addressed in Matthew chapter 16. Because it was Israel that was the focus of the attention and the mission of the Messiah. 
Jesus Christ. Israel, of course, had waited for a substantial period of time for the advent of the Messiah. A long protracted period had elapsed between the time of the captivities of the northern and southern kingdom, the divorce, the bill of divorce given to the northern kingdom by the God of Israel, the ensuing time period of the respective captivities of the two kingdoms of Israel, the return, of course, to the Holy Land of a remnant of the southern kingdom, the activities that we read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that involve the rebuilding of the house of God and the reestablishment of the people of God in that land that at one time they had flourished and been mightily blessed and prospered. Of course, also, we know that along with the remnant coming back from Babylonian captivity, also, there came the, the counterfeit, the synagogue of Satan, those who later on in the New Testament, in John 8 specifically, Jesus would point the finger of condemnation at and inform them that they were of their father, the devil. So again, in both of these sections of scripture that we have read, the same people are being addressed, namely the Israel people of God. Remember God's word says that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Abraham had a son Isaac, and it was through Isaac that the chosen seed or people of God were called. And so in Malachi, the people are being remonstrated with. They are being called on the carpet, if you will, for their having turned away from God's ordinances, for having robbed him. And yet there is a message of hope enveloped in his words of admonition and correction. And that message of hope was that if they would turn back to him, that he would turn back unto them. And that same message of hope is still applicable to the state of affairs and condition of those same people who are still very much identifiable in the world today, the Israel people of God. Now, the true Israel people of God are not those spoken of in Revelation uh, 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, those who claim to be Judeans, those who claim to be among the chosen people of God, but who do lie, John said in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, and are the synagogue of Satan. Those passages say that, that he knew the blasphemy of those who asserted this false claim. But again, the true people, the continuation of the people that we read about in Malachi and that we read about in Matthew, those same true people are readily identifiable in the world today. And of course, they are people of European extraction, heritage, and ancestry. 
They are the true people of Scripture. We, those of European heritage and ancestry, actually are the children of the promise. We are the heirs of the covenant, or covenants, plural, that God has made with our people, our ancestors in times past. And of course, James, the first chapter, the very first verse, James makes it clear that he is addressing the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad. He gives them his greetings. Those were the people that the New Testament was directed toward. So in Matthew 16, of course, we read that Jesus says that upon this rock, and he, of course, is the rock of all ages. He is that solid rock. And he said upon this rock, referencing himself, that he would build his church and that the gates of hell, the very gates of hell, would not be able to prevail against his church. Today, as we face the myriad threats, problems, and vexing circumstances that envelop us and besiege us, it is imperative that we be in firm possession of an active and working knowledge of and understanding of the precepts set forth in these passages of Scripture that we have read because they are exceedingly pertinent and relevant to our current circumstances. Like the Israelites of old that are addressed in Malachi, we too today have turned away from the ordinances of our God. We too have robbed him. We have failed to consecrate all that we possess to his service and to the advancement of his kingdom and his righteous and holy cause in the earth. We have failed to be diligent and determined in the methodologies that we outwork in our lives concerning the necessity of being in conformity to and in obedience to his holy law and to his truth. And as a result of this dereliction of duty on our part, of course, we are suffering from chastisement. We are suffering at the hands of the wicked whom he has allowed to rise up around us that we might be persecuted, that we might be hamstrung in our endeavors, and that we might be rendered in many respects impotent in our desire to serve and glorify our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We, of course, have succumbed to and fallen into many of the classic and traditional traps, snares, and pitfalls 
We have allowed ourselves to be prideful. We have allowed ourselves to be haughty. We have allowed ourselves to fancy that we are something that we are not. And we have also allowed ourselves to fall into the delusion that being lukewarm can possibly bring about any other result other than that which is spoken of in Scripture. Yes, we are lukewarm today as a people. And as a result of that status that we find ourselves in, we are deserving of being spewed out of his mouth, quite frankly. So what do we do in this set of circumstances that we find ourselves in? Well, again, we remember the word spoken very fittingly and wondrously in Malachi, the third chapter, that if, it is a contingency here, if we will return unto him, or in other words, return unto his ordinances, his instructions, his holy law. If we will return unto him, then he will return unto us. And this is a beautiful reality and truth and proposition. Our God, in his eternal glory, he is long-suffering. He is merciful. And of course, he is faithful in a way that the human mind can scarcely comprehend. And he, of course, will live up to the terms of the covenants that he has struck with our forefathers. But we must demonstrate to him a yearning and a desire and a willingness to be found in obedience to and in conformity to the precepts and the parameters that he has established for us in his truth, in his word, and in his law. This is a very critical understanding and epiphany and realization that we must arrive at in order for us to have the sufficient motivation to do what it is that we must do with the level of, of fervency and devotion that we must possess to bring about that process whereby he will return unto us. And if he returns unto us, he will make our enemies our footstool. Yes, indeed. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he can enable us to roll back the flood tide of evil. He can enable us to walk in victory, not only spiritually, but also in the earthly realm over those who would otherwise delight in perpetrating our very destruction. John 10, 10, of course, says that the thief cometh not but for to kill and to destroy. But Jesus said, but I come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Yes, he wants us to experience and live and enjoy the abundant life. Now, this isn't just a life of leisure or pleasure uh, that he wants us to wallow in. The abundant life is a life that is chock full of instances and opportunities 
for us to consecrate all that we possess to his service and to walk in servitude to him. That is the abundant life that he wants us to be in possession of and that we will be in possession of if we have a healthy understanding of the fact that the adversary and his minions desire with every fiber of their being to effectuate and to hasten and bring about our very destruction. Yes, we must take this situation very seriously. And today, of course, the evidences surround us 360 degrees as to this murderous intent that lurks in the hearts of the enemies of our God. That murderous intent that these enemies have toward us because we are his people. We are his ambassadors. We are his foot soldiers. We are his emissaries in the earth. And the enemies of Jesus Christ want to grind us, the people of God, into fine powder. They want to take our very lives. They want to torture us. They want to subject us to all manner of indignity and torturous oppression. We must know this. We must understand this. We must not view the world through the proverbial rose-colored glasses. And we must not be adhering, as often our people have, to the unrealistic and erroneous notion that somehow we can be oblivious and we can be indifferent to those requirements that our God has placed upon us and still possess his blessing, his protection, and his empowerment. You see, when we turn away from, as is spoken of back in Malachi, when we turn away from him, when we rob him, then he removes that protection. He removes that empowerment. He removes that inspiration that would otherwise be ours for the taking. And so in going in back into the Gospel of Matthew, the 16th chapter, verse 18, when our Messiah says, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And then he says, and upon this rock, speaking of himself, that rock of all ages, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He is giving to us, to our forebears and to us as well through the timeless and eternal power of his word. He's giving to us the guarantee and the assurance that we can emerge victorious over the hellish intentions and policies and practices of his enemies who, of course, are our enemies as well. Now today, again, we have a very sophisticated, treacherous web of enslavement that has been spun around us. We are captives already. We haven't been led out of our land yet 
in captivity and in bondage, but that is a distinct possibility looming on the horizon as well. There was a high-ranking Chinese general who very matter-of-factly, in a, a speech that he was giving, he said, talking to America in particular, he said, we are going to take your women. That's what he said. And of course, historically, whenever a pagan or heathen people have subjugated either other pagan heathen peoples or even God has allowed them to subjugate his people, it is a common practice of this type of sacking and vanquishing activity to steal the women of a nation, to kill all of the men, especially of fighting age, to to brutally murder and massacre them, and then, of course, to steal the women and put them into bondage and servitude and subjugation. It would be well deserved today if the words of this Chinese general came to fruition. Because the level and the degree to which we have turned our back on the God of Scripture would warrant that type of punishment at the hands of a righteous God. And you see, China has a compelling motivation to want to steal women because they don't have enough of their own. Because of their ghoulish and grotesque and hideous policies of forbidding their people to be fruitful and multiply and their one-child policy that they for so long rigidly enforced, there is a dramatic shortage of women in China. The men significantly outnumber the women because aborticide, abortion, the killing of unborn babies has been very, very common and prevalent in China for a very long time. And it has been commonplace during the one-child policy era for Chinese families to abort female babies so that their one child that they would be allowed to have would be a boy. And of course, it is wonderful to have daughters. It is wonderful to have female children. But it is very, very common for a man in particular to desire to have a son or sons, plural. And it is very, very rewarding Although having a firstborn daughter is certainly a, a great and magnificent blessing from God, but for a man to have a firstborn son is special in a very real way. And so it is understandable how even in the Chinese culture they would manifest and exhibit the same propensity and in the dire and desperate circumstances that those pathetic people have lived in for so long that there would be the inclination for female babies to be aborted in the womb so that the man and woman could strive to have a son, a boy. This has led to this acute shortage of women, and it was upon that basis of reality that the Chinese general said, we are going to take your women. Now, they've already taken our women, 
the enemies of our God and our children, in case you haven't noticed. For many generations now, we have been languishing in darkness and in delusion and deception. World War II, of course, was a great deception that was perpetrated upon the American people. The American public was led to believe in the era of World War II that somehow the Allied forces were the embodiment of all that was good and virtuous while the Axis forces were the antithesis of that, the embodiment of all that was evil and vile and dreadful. Now, I hasten to point out that in this great conflict that we call World War II, there really weren't any good guys. You see, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when men form governments, and they are not bound by the chains of a constitution such as ours in America, they will go to excess, they will abuse their power, they will run roughshod over the inalienable rights of the people, and all of the authoritarian powers of the world during the World War II era, as well as the World War I era before it, all of them were guilty of this egregious offense, usurping power, wielding tyrannical-type power over their respective populations. Of course, Germany, which has been villainized and demonized and vilified more so than any other people in our modern era. Germany, of course, was subjected to incalculable propaganda at the hands of a a press throughout the world, a media apparatus that already at that time was very, very much under the influence and control of the historic and traditional enemies of the Christian faith. And Adolf Hitler was portrayed as the ultimate embodiment of evil during the World War II era. And he was used as a symbol of villainy to rally peoples throughout the earth into the cause of the Allied forces. Now, the Allied forces, in large part, of course, uh, primarily led by the prowess and the abilities of, of America, even at that stage of our development, as a relatively young nation, already we were the, the head of the pack. The British, of course, were, were key and prominent in the Allied forces. But also, there was Russia, Bolshevik, communist Russia. And we, America, we built the Soviet military machine. Even after the, the end of World War II, during what is called the Cold War, now in the history books, even during that period, we continued to supply and bestow financial benevolence upon our supposed communistic enemy, the Soviet Union. We built the Russian bear. And of course, it was those murderous, ravaging communist forces that overtook half of Europe, 
half of Germany and even half of Berlin. And they subjected the German people to horrific persecution and murderous destruction and subjugation. We, of course, empowered them. We made this possible. Generals such as Patton realized the foibles and the fallacies of our alliance and policies and indicated a desire to take some type of action in opposition to what he saw going on before his very eyes. He died an untimely death. And of course, we know that very often people who resist the evil satanic power that cloaks itself in the garments of righteousness and goodness, we know that very often people who oppose this power wind up dying untimely deaths. Often they supposedly commit suicide when in reality the evidence points to them having been murdered. Or they will die in a freakish type accident. The failure of brakes in a vehicle. The crashing of an aircraft. Or, of course, sometimes succumbing to a dreadful illness. An illness uh, that might be induced, possibly. Radioactive material put on the fabric of furniture that someone sits at when they are at their desk. This is an old trick in the Soviet Union to bring about a cancerous development in the spinal column when they have been exposed to this highly deadly and radioactive material. We know that cyanide-induced heart attacks are a reality. And of course, these types of illicit procedures are the stock and trade of the intelligence apparatus of authoritarian countries, be it the KGB of the former Soviet Union or be it our own Central Intelligence Agency and other intelligence agencies within our governing structure in America. These techniques are practiced. And of course, in the World War II era, the vilification and demonization of Hitler was for the purpose of leading people to the erroneous conclusion that at the end of World War II, somehow the world had been made safe for so-called democracy. Of course, World War II did not end before we had the, the spectacle and the visage, the, the horrifying sight of the mushroom cloud, the detonation of the atomic bomb, and its corresponding annihilation of large, vast numbers of people who were in the target area of the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it was the mushroom cloud and its, its dreadful imagery that made the sale of the United Nations a virtual slam dunk. It was virtually guaranteed that the world would embrace and accept the United Nations 
in order to avoid what would otherwise seemingly be the inevitable prospect of thermonuclear annihilation. The United Nations, it was falsely advertised, would be a defense against such thermonuclear annihilation. A United Nations would be a body and a forum that could work out the disputes, the disagreements, and the differences between nations and establish a modicum of peace throughout the world. Of course, anybody who was astute at that time would have known that the UN, the United Nations, could never have evolved into anything other than the evil institution that it is today. The United Nations, of course, was not founded and predicated on and based on biblical Christian principles and truth, although they have not been beyond improperly spinning and exploiting and utilizing passages of Scripture, such as references in Isaiah to beating swords into plowshares. Yes, the UN is wicked, vile, and despicable to the core and never, ever should have been allowed to be established on American soil. And America should have never, ever participated membership-wise in the United Nations and certainly should have never funded the lion's share of the budget of the United Nations. And yet that is exactly what America has done. And we have blood on our hands. A great deal of the misery and the suffering and the bondage that we are under in America today is owing and attributable to our involvement with, our empowerment and support of the United Nations. And of course, any true, blue, legitimate, truth-promoting president of America, or any other lesser office for that matter at the federal level, would be a staunch proponent of the eviction of the United Nations from American soil. That should be a centerpiece promise of anyone aspiring to national office that they will go to whatever lengths are necessary to destroy, to tear down, to evict, to emasculate and rid the nation of the UN, the United Nations. Because we cannot continue to have such an affront and an offense to the truth and to the God of Scripture as the UN on our soil and ever hope to be delivered from the insidious forces of evil that hold us under their thumb and within the scope of their power, their exploitative power. Well, the good news is, again, in Matthew 16, we are informed that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And even though this World War II delusion was foisted upon us 
going that far back, even though we were led to believe that Hitler and Germany were the embodiment of evil, when in reality, the Axis powers, abusive though they were toward their own populations, they were endeavoring to take a stand against the menacing advance of Bolshevik atheistic communism that was coming toward the West from their eastern stronghold in Russia. Hitler realized that Bolshevik communism was the greatest threat to the West and to the people of the West. And so the winners write the history books. That's the old saying. I've mentioned on this broadcast before the book The Forced War by David Hagen, and I recommend that book for anyone who wants to have a more balanced understanding of what led to World War II. I would also recommend the book Hitler, Born at Versailles for anybody who wants to have a better understanding of the interconnectedness between World War I and the Versailles Treaty and then the instigation of and the carrying out and prosecution of World War II. These are subjects that our people are ignorant of. And of course, ignorance is deadly. If you are ignorant of the truth relative to your past, then there is no way that you can have a firm handle of understanding on the present, and certainly you cannot extrapolate forward and project forward in an effective way into the future. We must, once again, dust off the evidence of the true history of our civilization and of our people going all the way back into the Old Testament so that we can understand who the cast of characters on the world stage today consist of and especially that we might understand our own identity, our own identification as the contemporary manifestation of the Israel people of God. Now, you don't have to take my word for this proposition and this premise. I challenge you, do what the scripture says, ask and it shall be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened unto you. Many people approach subjects that they really don't want to believe or accept. They approach those subjects in an intellectually dishonest way. They have cognitive dissonance already. They think they already know everything they need to know, and they will approach a subject that they do not desire to come into possession of knowledge relative to, and they will approach those subjects in a way that makes it virtually impossible for them to acquire the truth. In other words, they will have a prejudicial mindset concerning those subjects. And if, it, on the other hand, if we approach this subject with objectivity and an unbiased perspective, then God will reward our diligence with the bringing forth of truth. And of course, there is a requisite requirement of humility in order to admit that maybe you've been wrong about something. Maybe you were deficient in your understanding. So humility is also a cornerstone component 
of the process whereby you can have your eyes opened up to a very, very urgent and important body of truth. Don't have the attitude of don't bother me with the facts. I've already made up my mind because that is an insult to the God of Scripture, the very God who said through the Apostle Paul, prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Prophetically, archaeologically, historically, through heraldry, in so many different ways, we can establish the direct link and connection between the Israel people of old and those in the world today who who are the people, who are the descendants of those who were in the localities and the nations and the territories that the apostles went to in fulfillment of the Great Commission. Where did they go? They went to what is modern-day Britain, what is modern-day France, what is modern-day Spain, what is modern-day Italy. They went to all of those territories that comprise and constitute the present-day European nations because... They were taking this message of the gospel of the kingdom spoken of in Matthew 24 to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember, God had promised Rebekah she would be the mother in the book of Genesis of thousands of millions, billions in other words. And remember also that there were many millions of people who were the descendants of those Israelites of the northern kingdom who had gone into captivity and into bondage. But we know that verses like Hosea 8.8 and Amos 9.9 give promises as to the fact that God would preserve Israel during this period, this long protracted period of being in dispersion. And yet James, of course, in James 1.1, was able to directly address the 12 tribes scattered abroad. They were in close enough proximity to where James could be certain that his message would reach them. So I'm just giving you a little snapshot here as a momentary digression. But again, going back to the nuts and bolts reality of what we're dealing with concerning the passages in Matthew chapter 16 that we have read, where Jesus says that upon this rock, speaking of himself, that he would build his church. And the gates of hell, he said, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that mean? Of course, we have untold numbers of churches in America today. An associate of mine one time made it his point to count the churches in Cleveland, Tennessee alone. There were over 400 Christian churches in Cleveland, Tennessee. Many places that, that I have traveled to or lived in the southeastern United States had excessive and have excessive numbers of churches. The proverbial little church building on every corner. Of course, we refer to this part of the country as the Bible Belt. And sometimes people will, will refer to the buckle of the Bible Belt to emphasize that we in many ways, where I currently uh, spend my time, uh, we are at the epicenter probably of organized Protestant Christianity in America. 
And yet the irony is that although there are more churches than ever, more Christian ministries than ever, more Bible-type parachurch organizations and bookstores and facilities for the supposed propagation of the gospel, that despite this fact, we are in greater peril and in a more advanced state of darkness and blindness than ever before. So that tells us that something has happened to render what calls itself, collectively speaking, the church of Jesus Christ in the world today is woefully lacking in terms of bearing the marks and the accoutrements of authenticity. I like to say that the modern church is so lukewarm and impotent that it can't beat its way out of the proverbial wet paper bag. We seem to be completely impotent and powerless in the face of the dreadful evil sins of the day. The the abortion, the sodomites marching and demanding to play such a prominent role in our culture. The, The sickening and insane transgender phenomenon that has grown up around us. Of course, the heavy-handed tyranny of a runaway federal government and, of course, state and local governments as well, emulating the, the terrible example of the federal government. We could go on and on, listing and going through a litany of all of the dreadful, terrible afflictions that are upon us today that God has allowed because of our stiff-necked disobedience to his ordinances, to his truth, to his law. And yet, Matthew 16, 18 says that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So that tells us that the church can be and should be like a battering ram beating against the gates of hell, ultimately smashing the gates of hell, opening them with that battering ram, which would be the church, so that the people of God might storm the citadel of evil, the bastion of Satan's strength, his strongholds, that we might storm those bastions of wicked power and do a top to bottom house cleaning. Remember we read Hebrews 11 in a preceding broadcast and we read about how some of those great heroes of faith subdued kingdoms. Well, the modern church has become very much like that frog in the pan of water. Uh, slowly, slowly boiling alive, getting to the point of not even being able to jump out of the pan of water. And also the metaphor of the fleas in the jar where you can, supposedly you can put fleas in a jar and screw the lid on and the fleas will jump and they'll hit the top of the uh, the jar, the lid there, and then they will adjust their jump and then you can eventually unscrew the lid and the fleas will not jump out of the jar because they've been conditioned to believe that they could only jump so high. The same thing can be done, of course, with a circus elephant, training that elephant uh, with a a very heavy-duty chain, 
training the elephant that it can only go so far before being restrained by that big chain. And then later it can be replaced by a much smaller chain or a much smaller tether. So we're very much like these metaphors in terms of having been conditioned to believe that somehow there is an inevitable prophetic sequence of events that are, that's unfolding before our very eyes today that we are powerless to overcome and resist. Back in 1979, when I became a regenerate, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the bookstores were replete with, they were chock-full of titles such as 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Return in 88, and titles that reflected a belief in an imminent return of Christ that, that basically could, could not even see its way beyond the unfolding of another decade. And here we are more than 40 years later, and the prophets of that era, the self-appointed prophets, were wrong. They were wrong. And had they been operating in a bygone era, they might have been stoned to death. And we have the false prophets today who similarly are doing the same thing, leading our people to a state of despair and hopelessness. Well, we've gotten to a point here where in a subsequent broadcast, we can talk with greater specificity about just how it is that the church can be what our Messiah is describing it as here. Because it certainly is not worthy of that description in its present form and configuration, is it? I don't think so. It is a virtual laughingstock, quite frankly, and that grieves me to say that. But the rejection of truth is at the root and at the core of the malaise and of the, the impotency of what calls itself the modern church. And so we must get to the bottom of this problem. We must troubleshoot this problem with the power, the intensity, and the strength of the Word of God. I want to give you an address, a phone number, and an email that you can communicate with us through. You can write to us at P.O. Box 274, Etowah, E-T-O-W-A-H, Tennessee, 37331. P.O. Box 274, Etowah, Tennessee, 37331. Or you can call at 423 241 7902. 423 241 7902. Or you can email us at Voice of Liberty 1776 at gmail.com. Dot com. So we welcome your inquiries, your communication, and would deeply appreciate the opportunity to get to know any who would like to, to uh, explore to a greater extent and degree the topics or the subjects that we address on this broadcast. We're just scratching the surface, my dear friends, and we've talked about the territorial imperative. Let me say by way of summary that there is no solution in America today to be found at the national level for those who cling to the delusion that somehow Donald Trump is going to come riding back uh, into the picture on a white horse and that somehow he is going to meaningfully reform the unreformable. You're living in a state of deception and delusion. Are we thankful for whatever good has been done during the four years of Trump's presidency? And are we uh, 
absolutely enraged over the fact that the presidential election has been stolen in broad daylight from Donald Trump? Yes, we're enraged and and we are thankful to the extreme extent and degree for everything good that Trump was able to do. But realize, please, that the sum total of everything that Trump was able to do doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what needs to be done. And there are subjects that are utterly and completely taboo and off limits to Donald Trump that he will never, ever touch with a thousand-foot pole. Donald Trump certainly is the most and has been the most pro-Zionist president in modern America. Donald Trump, of course, would never become firm and and fast and hardcore in terms of evicting the United Nations off of American soil. Donald Trump never misses an opportunity to denounce so-called racist and white supremacist, even though those are buzzwords to try to turn people against anybody and everybody who expresses any degree or level of pride in their Caucasian ancestry and heritage. Donald Trump, of course, in the rolling out of the, the globalist pandemic planned in the, the inner sanctum of the United Nations, didn't do anything to thwart the rolling out of the phony, bogus pandemic, but instead dutifully declared a state of national emergency and empowered the governors of all the states to do likewise, and then continued to put Dr. Fauci, the, the vile and wicked personage that he is, in a position of prominence. So don't believe there's hope for a solution at the national level, but understand that it is only at the local level and through secession, legal, lawful, biblical, constitutional secession, that we possess any hope of seeing the fulfillment of Second Chronicles 7.14 in our midst, which is that passage of Scripture that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then God said, will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Well, we thank you for having tuned in today, and we look forward to being with you again on The Voice of Liberty. And we look forward to hearing from you. And until we are together again, we are very, very much desirous that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would bless, would protect, would empower, and would enlighten you to greater and more advanced levels of his truth. Because we are going to need to be in possession of every, every conceivable vestige and every ounce of truth that we can muster in the days ahead as we fight the battle against the minions of hell. This is Rick Tyler saying goodbye for today, and may God bless you. We need such preacher men today to show our people the way to redeem their lost liberty. The fires of hell cannot prevail against one man who'll take a stand from the pulpit, expose tyranny, and teach his people liberty. Liberty to exercise all their God-given rights, right to at the time of their birth.